if we're really going to evolve these technologies from lab curiosities to institutionalized capabilities, then we absolutely cannot allow ourselves to get too immersed into groupthink or too married to singular development paths. You truly do get to witness transformational technologies come to life in real time. We're glad you're along with us today for Small Steps, Giant Leaps, a NASA Apple Knowledge Services podcast where we tap into project experiences to share best practices, lessons learned, and novel ideas. I'm Dina Nunley. NASA's game-changing development program is advancing space technologies that could lead to completely new approaches for future missions, as well as solutions to significant national needs. Game-Changing Development Program Executive Nikki Werkheiser is our guest today on the podcast. Nikki, thank you for joining us. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. What is the Game-Changing Development Program? So the Game-Changing Development Program is part of NASA's Space Technology Mission Directorate. Uh, This program advances our space technologies that can help us lead to entirely new approaches for our agency's future space missions. And the way we do this is we collaborate with research and development teams to progress to the most promising ideas, and we do it through analytical modeling, ground-based testing, and spaceflight demonstrations for payloads and experiments either on space station and and you'll hear some today about uh, on the lunar surface. And for game changing, we really focus on uh, what we call the mid technology readiness levels, which is the range of three to six for those that are familiar with that, uh, which really means that we generally take technologies all the way from the initial lab concepts through uh, complete engineering development prototypes. And the way that we really employ this is through a, a balanced approach of guiding the technology development efforts and our competitively selected efforts from really across academia, industry, in-house at NASA, of course, and other government agencies. And then we strive to develop really the best ideas and capabilities, irrespective of their source. So we have a, a very interesting balance of work and folks that we get to work with. Would you say game-changing development is unique among NASA programs? In terms of program structure, uh, GCD, we're in our ninth year of execution. And we have a, a portfolio of about 83 projects and tasks, so it's, it's quite large and diverse. Um, this does include, as I mentioned, our in-house efforts that are being Im- implemented by more than uh, about 250 civil servants across our seven NASA centers. But approximately about 45% of the current activities are in collaboration with 40-plus of our industry partners, uh, dozens of universities, and multiple other government agencies. So really speaking to your question, uh, managing technology development programs in general uh, comes with unique challenges. So many of the efforts are inherently higher risk and we will face uh, significant technology and technical hurdles along the way. That's part of the process. And so uh, realistically, this does result in schedule and budget risk and issues all along the way, which makes it kind of a unique program to manage. And then Furthermore, when you look at game changing, uh, the fact that we do work in that mid TRL capability area, which is lovingly referred to as the valley of death when you're looking at technology readiness, um, this TRL four to six range requires really bridging the gap between academic research, which usually falls between the one to four TRL range and industry commercialization, which is more like the seven to nine range. And so that does uh, make it unique. And then when you combine with that, that most of the NASA workforce, um, for most of us, technology development is a learned skill based on experience rather than a degree. 
So often our engineers and even our resource managers and lawyers, it can sometimes be a little uncomfortable managing those unknowns that are really intrinsic to technology development. So in terms of managing the project, it is somewhat unique in that you really have to anticipate and incorporate that into the programmatic planning in order to really successfully increase that technology readiness level and progress on to the infusion capabilities. And so what we have found is that with creative and flexible thinking, and we combine that with the agile mechanisms that we have to work with our NASA centers and industry and academia, a lot of times what we initially perceive as those hurdles really become more opportunities for even greater technical and process disruption. And for me, I've found that's actually one of the most rewarding aspects of this whole technology development process. So if I had to say what makes it unique, it's kind of finding that secret sauce that you have to, to find for leading these types of developments. And it's a real conscious balance of programmatic vigor and technical rigor in how you develop the technologies. What's most exciting about working with this program? Oh, wow. I, a lot of things, really. Um, <laughs> if I had to, to narrow it down, um, when I think about what I really love most about working with Game Changing, um, I can't. one of my favorite quotes is, I can't help but to think of that, it was by Henry Ford, and he said about inventing the car, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. So I find that that is just as true today with technology development, because as humans, we can really easily grasp or understand what the ultimate capability is that we desire, but what the new technology may look like is still very unknown, right? So I grew up in the 80s when my friends and I were all imagining what the 21st century would be like. And so when we thought of that, we always thought for sure we'd have our flying cars. And of course, it goes without saying that we don't have those in every garage quite yet. But guess what? We do have the internet. And so we have phones now that we can hold in our hands that are quite literally millions of times more powerful than the Apollo 11 guidance computers. And who could have saw that coming, right? So for me, the most exciting thing about technology development is that you truly do get to witness transformational technologies come to life in real time. And sometimes you don't realize even in that second um, the meaning of that moment, but you can look back on it and, and, and realize how pivotal that really is. And of course, not every technology works out, uh, but when they do, it, it truly is, well, game changing <laughs> and not just in space, but uh, it's just as rewarding right here on Earth to see how all these capabilities um, make life better for all of us. Working with a game-changing program, are you generating or discovering novel approaches to collaboration and partnership? Absolutely. And I think uh, being able to do that is just as pivotal as the technologies themselves. If we're really going to evolve these technologies from lab curiosities to institutionalized capabilities, then we absolutely cannot allow ourselves to get too immersed into groupthink or too married to singular development paths, which for any large agency, any large group at all, is just a risk that you run. So in order to really meet those challenges, we've developed a keen sense of combining flexibility and agile planning and then pairing our internal and external resources uh, with public-private partnerships and those sorts of mechanisms in ways that really leverage our relative government, industry, and university strengths. So there is so much opportunity for collaborations in this mid-TRL range, being that we really are bridging, as I mentioned, that proverbial valley of death between 
that lower TRL, which is more research and development focused with our academia um, and university communities. And then the higher TRL with demonstrations, which is more with industry. So it leaves us a lot of opportunity and we are incredibly fortunate that we do have so many amazing collaborative tools in our toolbox within the agency that we can employ and in a multitude of ways. So for example, um, some of these might include crowdsourcing and centennial challenges, SBIRs. Uh, we flew actually three novel ISS demonstrations in the area of 3D printing in space in just under six years using the SBIR program. And uh, other opportunities like our NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts. These are further out, very novel ideas, but we also have what they call Phase 3 NIACs, which are somewhat new. Um, we have one right now that's uh, exploring lunar pits with Astrobotic and Carnegie Mellon, for example. And then the whole uh, space technology research grants opportunities where we have research institutes and early career faculty at universities uh, that we employ, broad agency announcements, and much more in terms of public and private partnerships. Uh, so really, uh, we have such an amazing toolbox, and it's, it's a lot of fun, and, and I really enjoy the strategy of looking across that portfolio, across those capability development areas, and seeing how to best um, very deliberately and consciously mix and match out of that toolbox to use those resources the most effectively. One of the most significant uh, collaborative efforts uh, that we just stood up here uh, recently and that's currently underway includes our Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium. So in April of 2019, uh, Space Tech was asked to lead the Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative, uh, which was announced shortly after the Artemis program. And it's a technology development portfolio that allows us to do rap rapidly explore on the moon and future operations on Mars and how we actually establish the lunar infrastructure that we need for true sustainability of living and operating on the moon. So we've looked across different opportunities and different organizations on how we might employ or get a consortium in this area stood up that would focus more on um, technology development and gaps for lunar surface capabilities. And so we started looking at our existing university affiliated research centers or UARCs. And um, we really have a, a wealth of knowledge in the United States within the UARCs and then have been established for decades. And one that really stood out for our purposes was the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Labs. And many folks may be familiar with them and the work they've done with NASA and particularly with the Science Mission Directorate. But their roots were really founded with the Navy and DARPA and doing a lot of technology development type activities. And so when you marry that experience with NASA, along with what they've done on the DARPA and Navy side with technology development, it was really a perfect mix for a um, system integrator for LSII and for establishing this consortium. So we worked with APL on how we would set up this consortium that would focus on surface technologies for living and operating on the surface and provide really regular stakeholder communications and networking and then really create true technology infusion opportunities. And in addition to that, we also wanted to make sure that that this consortium could provide mentoring among our large and small industry participants. So we have a lot of our what you know often is referred to as traditional space and new space and how we could also implement uh, mentoring there as well as with our university students and early career folks in this community. So in less than six months after we got the contract stood up with uh, APL, we actually created this national, national consortium 
and we held the kickoff at APL in late February of this year, and we had over 250 participants across industry and government and academia. And what was really interesting to me um, and, and what we really wanted to ensure is that we didn't just see that the same folks that always work in this area and are familiar with what we do in space tech, we wanted to also infuse that with folks that weren't quite as familiar, and we worked really hard to try to reach out to that newer audience as well and have a good kind of cross-pollination. And so after polling the attendees, about 52% that had participated in the kickoff had never worked with NASA space tech previously or were aware of the opportunities provided. So we're very excited about where this is leading and the type of activities that come from that. Um, in June this past year, we actually initiated the consortium focus groups, which are complementary to the biannual larger consortium meetings. The focus groups are actually established across each of our six LSI capability areas, and they meet monthly virtually and really dive in and focus on their technical areas. And as a community across that university and industry and nonprofit and government stakeholder group, um, they're discussing things like what are our key gaps? What are the real um, priorities that we have for sustainability? And where is industry, for example, investing internally in those versus where do they really need the government to kind of do those things that aren't and are never going to be profitable for industry in order to kind of lay, you know, the roads and pipes kind of stuff. So currently, after just two months or so of operation, we have about 160 organizations across those stakeholders participating in these monthly focus groups. And uh, I'm very excited to see where this goes. It's kind of a different model of, of um, marrying up the larger consortium meetings twice a year with the monthly focus groups and even have created things like LinkedIn groups where now we're seeing our, our members teaming up and talking and pulling threads even between the focus group discussions and trying things like uh, like they're going to be holding a supply and demand workshop that will bring potential consumers and producers together to discuss those technical needs and supply issues for our in-situ resource utilization or ISRU. And so uh, having those kind of more informal and consistent dialogues combined with the, the larger group meetings has been one of the ways that we've really uh, facilitated more collaboration and open dialogue. Do you think that technology development happens faster when it's in this environment that you just described? I think not only does it happen faster, I think it is much more effective. And I also believe that in an attempt to really understand where the value proposition is, where we work with industry and university, especially when you're talking about things like, you know, establishing sustainable operations on the lunar surface. And you see that we all have common goals, especially in the first, say, 10 years of the lunar mission in particular, where we all need these basic lunar infrastructure capabilities. We all need power. We all need access to certain locations on the moon. We all need to use the, the local resources and consumables. We all have to survive the extreme environment that the moon has to offer. So if we really collaborate and look at, like I said, those deliberate or conscious ways to leverage our, our strengths and how uh, government can help and kind of lay in the roads and pipes part of it, how industry can, um, where they are internally investing, where that state of the art really lies, kind of behind the firewalls. When you start to partner those things, you absolutely see an acceleration of getting to meaningful, effective collaborations and being really good stewards you know, of our, our taxpayer money, of course, um, and creating new capabilities for, for us as a, a country. From your vantage point as program executive, could you offer perspectives that might be helpful to program and project managers across the agency? 
Sure, absolutely. First of all, I would say use all the tools available to you. You know, as I mentioned before, uh, we truly do have an amazing array of tools at our fingertips um, in space tech and really across the agency. I know many of those have been highlighted on, on your podcast, and we all learn from them. Things such as our tech port capability, all the way to SBIRs and how we can use our center of excellence for collaborative innovation to do crowdsourcing. Things like Centennial Challenges uh, that really puts out novel ideas of ways that uh, industry and universities and and even uh, private citizens can participate in solving actual NASA challenges and much more. So if you really look at your projects and your portfolio and you really challenge yourself to see how you can use these opportunities and, and have some fun with it, right? Mix and match. And it really starts to make a lot of sense. And you start to find that you really do um, reap some meaningful schedule, budget, and technology benefits. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, you really have to create hyper clear priorities and communicate them articulately and often. So uh, I know I had a coworker that used to talk about the 10 by 10 by 10 rule. Uh, say something in 10 ways, say it 10 times so that people retain 10%. And it's true, you know, we all speak kind of different languages and um, and then think, hear things in different ways. And especially when we're talking about technology development and what capabilities we need. So, um, you know, really setting those clear priorities, how we need to focus on our objectives and phase those to meet our programmatic needs. And then, you know, clearly repeating that and taking time to say that as many ways to many audiences as you can, I think is, is very important. And then um, obviously things like, you know, be honest, be empathetic and be available. That's hard right now. We're all in this uh, COVID environment. And so we have to find new and creative ways of doing that. It's not as easy to walk down the hall and, you know, have a quick chat and, and run each other at the coffee machine. So, you know, we're all professionals, but first and foremost, we're humans and NASA really is a family. And I think we're all very passionate about our work. So, um, I think that's a really important one. Nikki, what role does NASA's early career workforce play in game-changing development? I can tell you it's a very large and significant one to us, and it's it's one of the most important things that we can do is to invest in and grow our early career workforce and really develop this you know human supply chain, if you will, of diverse, experienced project managers and engineers and scientists, resource analysts, Um, All of this is just as, if not more important than our actual technology pipeline itself. And so, you know, as I discussed earlier, technology development can be very challenging and it's a a unique uh, thing to manage. And it does require a certain level of agility and risk acceptance and understanding of that technology development process. So the best way to really learn these things is through hands-on experience. And that's exactly why we have the early career initiatives. And it's why it's one of my very favorite space tech programs, because through fostering these early career initiative proposals and then eventually infusing many of those efforts into the actual GCD program as as projects and activities as part of our portfolio, we are providing very real and very meaningful firsthand experience to the early career workforce. And I can promise you that we actually learn every bit as much from them as they do from us. It really does. It's another important tool to keep us from, you know, having that group think um, and looking at new and creative ways to approach these problems. Uh, This past year in 2020, um, we selected seven new proposals for our Lunar Surface Innovation Initiative. Uh, We actually went 
above um, our normal uh, allocation or how many we usually select because we just had that many good and relevant proposals. And we are actually just this week um, doing our review for um, this upcoming years. And, and it's one of my favorite times of the year to get to hear those. So you talk about workforce dynamics, culture, Artemis generation, the excitement with the early career workforce. Let's talk about technologies that this generation is exploring. What are some of the innovative ideas that are capturing your attention? Oh, this is a fun topic. Well, I guess um, I've, got to, <laughs> I've got to preface that just a little bit. Um, I've always been a science and technology nerd, so this is just a very exciting uh, field in general to me. And when you uh, really consider the fact that 90% of all scientists that have ever lived are alive today, you really start to grasp what a truly exciting time that we are living in. So a simple statistic like that really captures the power of the exponential growth in science and engineering that's been taking place over the last century. For those that have not read it, there is a book um, in 1961, I think, called Science Since Babylon, um, where they studied scientometrics, and, and that's where those statistics came from. But it really does look at uh, the technological advancements and upheavals of the past 200 years and how we are only at the tip of the iceberg and how many ways science and technology has really drastically transformed our lives. And so this revolution has taken place almost entirely in the past 200 years with one-tenth of 1% 1 of our species, uh, 200,000-year history. So we've never really had so many people whose sole purpose of work is to better understand how the world works. And that really has far-reaching implications for all of us. So when you talk about specific favorites, um, in general, I love the whole idea of innovation and how we're really fostering that and what may come. It's hard to pick a favorite, but there are several capability development areas for the technologies that we need on the surface of the moon that, that I find extremely exciting to be working right now and feel like we're really on the cusp of really developing some technologies, like I said, that not only help us live and operate on the moon, but right here on Earth. So if you take in-situ resource utilization, for example, you know how we are going to use the resources on the moon's surface to get the consumables for the astronauts, um, to make propellants for our rockets, um, and how we can use those same resources in conjunction with things like our additive construction technologies to build structures like landing pads and possibly even habitats. And then, of course, to do any of these things, you have to have power and you have to have the ability to store that energy. So now we're also developing fission surface power and regenerative fuel cells and solar arrays and other novel technologies for power storage and distribution to do all of these things on the moon. And then in turn, of course, in order to do all of that, you have to be able to survive the extreme environment that the moon presents. And you have to be able to enable uh, rovers and manipulators and other systems that can operate on the lunar surface. When you have conditions that include things like the lunar noon, which is up to 150 degrees Celsius, um, and the night, which goes down to minus 180 degrees Celsius. And then you have multiple day and night cycles and permanently shadowed regions that go down to minus 240 degrees Celsius. So the technologies that you need um, and interdisciplinary aspects of that to me are, are very exciting. And even things that sometimes may seem trivial, such as dealing with the dust on the moon, right, require new technologies. And many people may say, well, you know, Apollo astronauts went there and they seem to make it work, right? But when Apollo astronauts went to the moon, of course, we didn't really have a good understanding of the regolith or you know, lunar dirt. Um, so the trouble with the moon dust, though, um, really does stem 
from the strange properties of the lunar soil itself. The powdery gray dirt is really formed by micrometeorite impacts, which then pulverize those local rocks into real fine particles. And then it melts that dirt into vapor and it condenses on the soil particles and ultimately it coats them in a really glassy shell. And these particles, we learned through Apollo, can really wreak havoc on spacesuits and all of our equipment. So if you listen to some of the stories from astronauts, I think one that really stood out to me was during the Apollo 17 mission, for example, when uh, when Harrison Jack Schmidt and Gene Cernan, uh, they really had trouble moving their arms during the moonwalks because the dust had gummed up all of the joints. And it was so abrasive that it actually wore through three layers of this Kevlar-like material on Schmidt's boots. So these are things that even though we've been, we learned a lot from those missions, and now we have to come up with new ways, new technologies to address that. And so when you look at longer term living and operating on the moon and sustainability, um, you know, we have to do things. There's no such thing as dust solution, but we have to mitigate the dust. So we have created new, um, just this past year, new small business innovation research awards and early career faculties and uh, tipping points and all those different collaborations that I talked about earlier on how we can actively, passively, or operationally help with those type of problems. So much to look forward to, and I can't wait to talk with you sometime in the future to hear how everything's going with the technologies that you're developing now and all these innovative ideas. Do you have a couple of favorite game-changing development success stories that you'd want to share with us? Oh, gosh. It's almost like your children, right? It's hard to pick your favorite. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to cheat a little bit. And since we are always looking forward to the next thing in the Game Changing Development Office, I'd have to say that maybe my favorites are related to some of our current opportunities that we have open (laughs) that build on what we've learned um, from our past successes. Um, And all of these, what's most exciting to me is they have the potential to really evolve into actual demonstrations on the moon. So, for example, we have an open uh, tipping point call that's in the evaluation phase right now, and we'll be announcing selections for that in September. Um, And we received uh, the most uh, solicitations we've ever received by like threefold, I think, in this topic area. And again, that tells us how much interest there is in there out there from industry and our other external stakeholders for these sorts of public-private partnerships. We have our Lunar Surface Technology Research Opportunity, or LUSTER for short, that's part of our Space Technology Research Grant Program. And these are one to two year university led efforts uh, with awards of one to two million each year to develop and mature technologies for our high priority lunar surface challenges. So these are real ways for universities and university students, again, to get that hands on experience and develop capabilities or technologies that truly do have potential for infusion into technology demonstrations on the lunar surface. We also have what we call our Breakthrough Innovative Game Changing, or BIG, because we love acronyms, Idea Challenge that's also open to all of our U.S. universities um, that's affiliated with their state's space grant consortiums. And those prizes range from 50000 to 180000 And that's looking for those dust mitigation solutions like I talked about earlier. So we really are um, asking our universities and our students out there to come up with new and creative ways of how we can mitigate these real-world problems that NASA faces. And then, of course, as I mentioned, we have a number of crowdsourcing prizes and challenges, and we have uh, um, one coming out uh, in September with our Centennial Challenges program that's called Watts on the Moon. <laughs> um, we have fun fun <laughs> with this. Um, on yeah. helping to address our surface power um, challenges. 
And then shortly mm -hmm. after that, we'll have an excavation manufacturing and construction challenge that will be kind of a follow-up to our 3D printed HAB challenges on the moon. So it's a little bit of a cheat, but all of these things um, are my favorites because they build on our past successes and we're able to move to this next step by building on the previous work we've done to develop these real capabilities. What challenges are you facing? So we've talked some about, uh, in general, the kind of just inherent aspects of managing uh, technology development and how that can be challenging and exciting at the same time. But of course, at the moment, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't discuss the real, you know, impacts and challenges that we're all dealing with, with the, the COVID pandemic um, and how mm -hmm. it, it brings, um, you know, how we do our work is changing so much. And this really is an unprecedented time for us and precedent in history when you really consider the tools that we have at our fingertips now that aid us in continuing to work virtually. So there's, there's a new way of doing business for all of us. Ironically, though, even in this unique environment, much does remain the same, um, including our, you know, our primary roles, our teams, our objectives. We're marching ahead. We're maintaining our schedules because of these amazing technology tools that we have available that allow us to still collaborate and work together. I have noted, though, um, that there are really uh, numerous minor challenges that when you add them together in terms of quantity and frequency, they realistically, they do result in considerable workforce fatigue. And these are often the things that we all discount as little things, right? But they simply wear folks down. And that includes things that are like constant and unpredictable computer glitches that slow us down or um, not having what I've been hearing referred to as micro breaks between meetings. You know, in physical meetings, even if you have back-to-back -back meetings all day, you get up, you leave a room, you walk to another room, you run into someone in the hall, you say, hi, how you been? You know, you, you grab some water at the fountain, you make eye contact. You know, now we, we literally hit a button on Teams or WebEx or whatever platform we may be using at the moment, and it switches to the next meeting and the next meeting. All of these things do add up. Um, one fun part, we've all got to know each other's pets and kids and, <laughs> um, you know, we're all very human. Getting dressed for work is much easier these days. But uh, with that comes, you know, the lines are blurred between kind of our, you know, our work personas and our home personas and, and the very real and significant challenges of things like, you know, parenting while trying to work and having younger children in particular with no real easy near-term solution on how to do those things in parallel. So, you know, I think these are, are unique times and uh, NASA is a family and we're all working together and having very open, transparent discussions and authentic discussions on how to best mitigate these things. Sometimes it's a little fix, like, you know, staggering meetings five to 10 minutes after the hour to give folks chances for those micro breaks and not letting them all kind of blend together. And then also, you know, it could change the way that we work together in the future even. You know, we, we might consider hybrid versus binary approaches to work schedules and job duties. Um, so it'll be interesting, you know, just like our technologies are disruptive, you know, how we work together virtually and what comes from this even in the long term will be interesting to see. Yeah, a lot to think about there. You covered a lot of ground. We've talked a lot about the Game Changing Development Program, but I want to ask you about a game changer that you engineered almost six years ago the creation of the first object to ever be 3D printed in space. In fact, Forbes called you a phenomenal NASA pioneer doing whatever it takes. How significant is that milestone? And what do you see as the future of 3D printing in space? 
Oh, goodness. Um, well, thank you. Of course, this one is very near and dear to my heart, and I get extremely excited when I think about the advancements we're seeing with um, additive and advanced manufacturing and materials. I could really geek out for a long time on this one. But the bottom line... Feel is, free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we could go on for a while. Don't get me started. Um, but I, I can honestly tell you that uh, for me uh, personally, when you really dig in and look at, you know, the major issues that we've had or challenges that we face since, you know, the inception of the human space program and when we launch things into space and kind of the cycle that you get into of having to build everything really heavy and sturdy so you can escape Earth's gravity on the rocket and survive the vibration of that um, and the cost that you incur from doing that and how you have to have all these extra spares. So the idea that you could have a capability to make what you need, when you need it, wherever you might be, has really larger implications than I believe we've even got our arms around. So the 3D printing ISS technology demonstration that you're referring to was really that first step toward realizing that. And in that short time frame, just to show how truly disruptive these capabilities are, uh, like I mentioned, within six years, we had flown three novel technologies, you know, including that first 3D printer um, with polymers and then um, the second one with the company Made in Space, which I'm so happy to see is operating as a kind of standalone business on space station now that uh, we NASA can use as well as universities, other government agencies, industry and international partners. Um, and then also capabilities like the refabricator that then takes um, these plastic parts, especially when you look at um, wasted or uh, used up food containers and medical equipment like syringes and the little otoscope specula that the doctor uses to look in your ear. And we just have to throw those things away, right? And so when you look at being able to add a capability that allows you to sterilize those and turn them back into 3D printing filament to make new parts, you really do start to see a, a dramatic paradigm shift in the development of creating kind of new space architectures and how you could go about operating in space and truly becoming more Earth independent through that efficiency gain and risk reduction and just basically a new paradigm for maintenance and repair and logistics. And so when we're looking at going to the lunar surface, for example, you kind of got the same situation, but on a larger scale, where now instead of small plastic parts, you're also looking around and you, you have all that famous moon dust that I talked about. So how can we use that? So you look at additive construction technologies, large scale 3D printing for how you can use those natural resources to make you know, large structures and, and uh, landing pads, habitats, things like that. Uh, which, again, changes the way that we can do business in space and really affords us a lot more opportunity for how we meet our schedules and our, our priorities and our budgets um, and develop these new technologies that have real implications right here on Earth. Uh, you can imagine what that might do for something like a FEMA um, disaster or uh, our soldiers in the field, uh, homeless shelters, for example. So there really are endless potentials. Uh, the one that we're working on now that I'm so excited about is called the uh, ISS Multi-Material Fabrication Laboratory, or Fab Lab for short. So now we're looking at metals in space and how you can actually print with aerospace-grade metals and even embed electronics. So one of my favorite questions I get from students is, when can you 3D print my phone? That's always the first. <laughs> um, but we really are able to print uh, with metals and embed electronics. So you can make circuit boards and all kinds of... Uh, sensors and interesting things. And uh, so we've been working on that one here for the last couple of years. And that'll be our next big demonstration on Space Station. It'll be about the size of a home refrigerator, uh, which is quite small for a machine that can do aerospace grade metals, um, take much, much less power and mass and volume than anything we have terrestrially at this point um, with similar capabilities. 
Um, so again, it has a, a lot of exciting positive disruption potential in space and right here on Earth. Many thanks to Nikki Warkheiser for joining us today on the podcast. You'll find links to topics discussed during our conversation, along with Nikki's bio and a show transcript, on our website at apple.nasa.gov podcast. If there's a topic you'd like for us to feature on the podcast, please let us know on Twitter at NASA Apple, that's A-P-P-E-L, and use the hashtag SmallStepsGiantLeaps. For more interviews about NASA missions and technologies, check out other NASA podcasts at nasa.gov slash podcasts. As always, thanks for listening to Small Steps, Giant Leaps.